We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, I think we understand uh, the destructive nature of water. We understand both things. We understand the life-giving aspect of water, but we also understand the destructive nature of water. Some of you have been watching the news lately. Uh, the, the, the east is just getting pounded with water. And uh, out west, we're like, ooh, we'll take some of that. Or we see these hurricanes come through Florida, things like that. We're like, you can send a little bit towards Colorado, right? Um, but, but the truth is, too much water and, and, over, and, and in a rapid amount of time, we know is destructive, right? Uh, that it can actually take lives. Uh, on this date in 2009, that's exactly what happened uh, to the people in the nation of the Philippines. So on September 24th, 2009, uh, Hurricane or Typhoon uh, Andoy is the name of it, uh, ripped through uh, Philippines and much of Southeast Asia. Um, and, and this was one of the biggest ones that they had gone through in, in years and years. Uh, and you can kind of imagine what a typhoon or a tropical storm like that um, would do to low-lying uh, countries, right? Islands, basically. Well, it did exactly that. Uh, hundreds of people died in that tropical storm. Uh, so I think the count was 665 people died from the destructive nature of the water that came in. There were accounts that just said um, it, 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 they had warnings, they had, they had uh, uh, alerts and things like that, and they knew that it was coming offshore, but they said it, it came too rapidly, it rose, the waters rose too quickly, and they simply had no place to go. When you live on an island and your entire island starts to become submerged, you, you start to lack places to go where you can find safety, okay? So almost 700 people died in this tropical storm. Almost 700 people die. I say it that way because 30 people did not die in that tropical storm. And the reason 30 people survived was because of this man right here. Uh, his full name is Mulmar uh, Magalanes, if I say that right. Uh, but he just goes by the name Toto. So Toto... Uh, was a, an 18-year-old construction worker in the Philippines. And as that water started to come in, uh, he recognized that he was young, that he was able-bodied, uh, that there were things that he could do that, that other people couldn't maybe necessarily do. And so without being asked, uh, he jumped into action. He just started to do what needed to be done. Now, you can kind of imagine what maybe his first line of thinking was. Uh, he had a family, right? Family around him. So the water started to rise. And so what did Toto do? Um, he saved his entire family, right? Got them out, got them on boats. Specifically, um, what he did was he tied a rope around himself and then tied the other end of that rope to something that was solid. And he systematically walked and carried all of his brothers, sisters, mom, dad, grandpas, grandmas, all to boats and to safety, okay? We're thinking, that makes sense. Right? In fact, we would say, okay, if we were in a similar situation, we had the same capabilities, same gifts, same talents that Toto had, um, we, we would do the same, right? We would try to preserve life. We would try to serve in that way. But uh, the amazing thing about Toto's story is that it didn't end there because he got his family out and then he saw his neighbors, some drowning, some dying and in obvious distress. And so what did Toto do with the rope around his waist? He continued saving people, 
systematically, one by one, neighbor after neighbor, getting them to boats, getting them to high ground, and getting them to safety. So we started with family. We say, yeah, that makes sense, right? And we go to neighbors. You're like, okay, yeah, because you probably know your neighbors. But Toto didn't stop there either. So he had saved his entire family. He had saved his neighbors. But then he recognized that there were people that were dying all over the place. And so he went back in back into the water with that rope tied around his waist to save as many people as he could. And he did, right? Uh, in total, 30 strangers Toto saved from drowning within that typhoon, right? Okay. It's, it's an amazing story, isn't it? An 18-year-old construction worker says, I'm going to not just serve my family, not just serve the neighbors who maybe I know, but complete strangers. That story ends uh, not with Toto's victory, but to be honest, with Toto's death. He went in one last time. He saw a mother and a child, a baby actually, and um, he brought them to safety. He was headed back in. That's when a, a wall collapsed. He was never seen again and he died. Okay. Service, not only to the people in our families, but to the neighbors around us and to complete strangers. And in Toto's case, to the point of giving your life. It's a beautiful story. The last two people that he saved said this. They said, it all happened too fast. As soon as we reached the roof, our house collapsed and the flood swept me and my child. Then I felt a hand pull us from sinking. It was Toto's. He saved us into higher ground, right? An, an act of service, an act of selflessness, um, and ultimately, it took his life, right? It's a beautiful story for the people that he brought from death to life. But maybe it's a good illustration for us as believers in this world and our acts of service. Um, maybe it's a good illustration uh, of how our acts of service can pull people from darkness can show them the beauty, the life-giving light of Christ, right? And we're able to do that one by one. That's what we want to look at here today. How does God view our acts of service in the world around us, right? What are the motivations for us to do something like that? And not maybe any of us are going to be asked by our God above to do something like Toto did. But I guarantee every single one of us has people that we can love, places that we can serve, and folks that we can take by the hand and pull from death to life. That's what we want to look at here today, right? Our acts of service, uh, how do we do those in service to our God above? So our uh, text this morning, you're going to find in your bulletin, I'll also have it on the screen behind me as well uh, as we kind of walk through it. It's from the New Testament book of 1 Peter, um, but a little bit of context setting. Oh, and... If you're studious, you all, when the bell rang, everyone, so I, I think we have a studious group here this morning. So uh, if you're studious and you like filling things in, I'm going to have some fill in the blanks for you here today. Uh, these are kind of the three areas that we want to go through. When we talk about our acts of service to our God above, um, these are the three that, that we're going to fill in as we kind of walk through our, walk through our text. So, okay. Uh, context of what's happening in First Peter and in what we've read here today. Um, it's important because... 
within the life of the early Christian church, we're, we're kind of in an interesting wave that's come out of it. So um, when Peter writes 1 Peter, this is about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, okay? So about 30 years later, um, Peter is writing the book of 1 Peter, and what the believers, disciples, apostles had been doing uh, was simply sharing Christ with, with the world around them with their neighbors, with their strangers, basically anywhere and everywhere that they could go, they were sharing Christ. And at the point of, of uh, Peter's lesson, his epistle, um, I don't know if I would argue that this is, this is a, an upslope in the wave or not, but it's a little bit, they, they had seen response from the message that they had been sharing, okay? People were coming to faith, right? People were coming to know who Jesus was, and specifically, through their acts of service in the world around them. So the book of 1 Peter is addressed to what we would probably call Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So we had lots of new churches that had been planted there, and Peter addresses those, those that were there. And, and um, um, hearts had become changed, and people were converting to Christianity. Now, if you know anything about history and Christian history, um, those conversions also uh, um, created a response and pretty shortly after the book of 1 Peter was written, um, and the emperor of Rome, Nero, would begin to crack down severely on Christianity, right? But at this point, when Peter's writing 1 Peter, hearts were being changed. Things were changing. A crackdown would come soon. Peter knew that. And so all of 1 Peter, in some sense, is to say how you've been serving, the things you've been doing, the love you've been showing, uh, the news you've been sharing of, Christ, of Jesus' death and resurrection, don't stop doing those things, not only because it is changing people's hearts, but because difficulty is coming. Pain, suffering, pushback, and in fact, some of you will lose jobs, lose livelihood, and some will lose their lives. And Peter says, in the midst of all of that, you have hope. You have hope of, of Christ, right, and what he had come to do. So um, we're kind of jumping into the middle of that text where Peter says, uh, um, he labels us and gives us names that are beautiful. So let's jump into that text. I'm going to begin by reading uh, verses 9 through 10 for you here today. So just verses 9 and 10. Peter says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Um, these are beautiful verses from Peter. And you know who he's talking about? He's talking about you. He's talking to believers, right? He's talking to those that have faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And yet, almost every time that we read these words, and almost every time that I read these words with other Christians, I will say, who, are the, who is Peter talking about? You. But you want to know almost instantly what may come to our minds? Are you sure me? <laughs> Right? Yeah. Uh, because we read these words and they're almost so lofty that I think instinctively we as believers uh, recognize, we're like, yeah, but I, I haven't done that. I haven't been that. 
That's not how I always look. And in fact, maybe you're here on a Sunday morning and maybe your actions, your words, your thoughts, how you treated your spouse or your kids on the way out the door to church are vastly different than what those words from Peter are describing. And so there, there becomes this kind of spiritual and emotional disconnect once in a while for us when we hear those words. If, if you feel that, um, you're not alone. You're, you're in a congregation full of people that feel the very same way. And actually, um, Peter alludes to it. And that's why I think these two verses are so beautiful because there's three things that Peter is, is, is weaving in and out of these verses and this narrative um, and that I think we are forced to weave in and out of our own hearts as well. And the first, you maybe felt kind of instinctively, right? You hear those words and you say, that's not me, right? That's not who I am, Right? But guess what? Peter knows that. The people he was talking to and us here this morning, where have we come from? Well, Peter tells us, right? He says you were called out of darkness, right? Stumbling around in the dark, trying to find eternal answers in the earthly answers that we can find in our world, right? So he calls us out of darkness. He says once you were not a people, right? And once you had not received mercy, those descriptions maybe feel slightly more comfortable for you on any given Sunday morning, right? Sometimes they do for me. Sometimes when I consider how I've treated the people that God has put in my life, the people that I would on paper claim to love the most, this is more my attitude and my words. Darkness on the outside, not love, right? The opposite of it. See, Peter recognizes that in you, in me, and in the readers of his letter. He says, we've been called from darkness. But after recognizing that, then Peter's words begin to soar. (laughs) Because it is not any merit on our behalf. It's not because we are such awesome people that all of these words become highlighted, right? Peter then says, you were called out of darkness, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a special possession. You were called into light, right? God's wonderful light. You were once not a people, now you are a people, and now you have received mercy, okay? So you understand, just in these two verses, Peter is weaving these things through, right? He's saying, here's where you've come from, here's where you are at, and he doesn't even stop there. He goes one step further, and he says, for what purpose? (laughs) I've been brought from darkness to light, now what? Peter says, here you go that you may declare the praises of him, okay? So almost in its entirety, in these two verses, Peter is saying to us as believers, um, here's who you were, here's who you are now, and here is the task that I've given you. But what's interesting is, there's kind of one thing missing here. Peter's actually assuming it a little bit, and because we're picking up this text and this this book kind of in the middle, he has said it earlier, um, but What we have to ask ourselves about all of these things is, what has made us change? Where has the change come from and what motivates us to be the things that Peter has now called us to be? If we want the answer for that, we actually can find it in our gospel text this morning that I read, right? Because Jesus puts the very same thing in front of his disciples. 
He says, you're not disciples, you're not believers, you're not all of these things that, and the things that you are going to become because uh, in and of yourself, you had such, such strong will, you'd done so many good things and, and at the heart of you, you were, you were such good people. In fact, none of those things were accurate, right? Jesus says to his disciples, the reason you are going to be able to live in this way is because of the way I have lived on your behalf. And it comes right at the very end here. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as ransom for many. And so that is our, that is what has changed us. That is what motivates us. And that is what gives us, even gives us the opportunity to understand our acts of service, our acts of love in the right light. It all comes back to Christ. And he says, I didn't come to serve, but to serve. And what did his service look like? Well, it looked like outstretched arms on a cross and the sacrifice of his life on our behalf. We love because he first loved us. And that wasn't just a, a fleeting emotional feeling. Christ's love meant that he laid down his life for you so your sins would be washed away. So that people that were standing in darkness, people that, that were repeating darkness, would be brought to light, knowing that we are loved and we are forgiven unconditionally in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So we can't, we have no hope of talking about how to live a Christian life, uh, um, how, to, how to serve our God above. We don't have any right talking about any of those things until we know what Christ is and what he has done on our behalf. In fact, that is what motivates everything that flows from a Christian life. The kids heard it just a little bit. This isn't a quid pro quo with our God above. Listen to the right music, do the right things, come to church on a Sunday morning, and good things are going to come my way from my God. God is not a vending machine where if we push the right buttons and put in the right money, then good things are going to fall down for us, right? That's not how God treats us. And to be honest, it's not how we want him to treat us because who of us have enough money or punch the buttons the right way and who is even determining that, right? But God and Christ says to us, that's not how I view you, that's not how I treat you, and it's not how I have lived on your behalf. Unconditional love which led him to the cross which then drives our love and our service and our Christian living, okay? So that's our very first point and it's one that we cannot lightly skip over because it drives everything else in us. Here's our first point. When we talk about service, it always is driven by the cross. That is what changes, that is what motivates, and that's what drives us into our world around us. Okay? First one. Continue on. Verse 11 says this. Uh, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles... To abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans, the unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, a um, couple things that's going on here with Peter. So we're saying we are motivated, we are driven by the cross, by Christ's um, unconditional love to us, right? That will lead us to acts of service and into the lives of the world around us. And Peter gives some description. He says, this is what at times it's going to look like. First thing is abstaining from sinful desires. The second one that they're going to see are good deeds. Uh, some of you know that um, not because I'm such a good athlete, but probably because my body is so weak um, that I have torn my ACL not once, but 
twice. Okay, yeah, I know. Some of you are grimacing. You're like, it's not good. Yeah, like, okay, yeah. Um, so I've torn my ACL twice. So I've been through this two different times. And after you are repaired, then you go through physiotherapy. And one of the most amazing things that I found, and it's not building the muscle and doing, doing all those things, but one of the most amazing things that I found in the rehab of the physiotherapy uh, was something that they call proprioception. Um, so what happens to some degree is that um, where, where our mind tells us our foot is located is slightly off from where our foot is actually located. In fact, they have some theories that if there's any of you that continually roll the same ankle, there's some theory that it's proprioception. So um, your, your, your mind thinks your foot is stepping here, but it's actually about a half inch the wrong way, and you end up rolling your ankle repeatedly. So that's what it is. So the very first thing they do when you're doing rehab is um, they, they reset, they align your mind with your body and say, okay, when you stand, your head knows exactly where your foot and your knee is because we can't do anything, after, anything beyond that. We can't do strengthening. You can't do agility. You can't do any of those things until your head is in line with where your body is actually at. Um, to a large degree, that's what Peter's talking about to us as believers. Um, he says, abstain from sinful desires. The Greek word is epithemia, which means um, it's not necessarily, and we sometimes get this idea that um, God just gives us a list of do this and don't do that. And he's kind of like this taskmaster, right? Do this, don't do that. Uh, um, and Peter says, abstain from sinful desires. Uh, the word there actually means like, um, like over desires. So it's not, it's not necessarily do this or don't do that, but it's like um, how apt we are to take something good and then just obsess about it. <laughs> to say, take something that in an earthly sense is, is, is a blessing, we would say is a blessing, and we just, we just double down on it. We just obsess about it, like an over-desire. Now, what does that look like? Well, you, you probably know, right? There are times when, when our careers become our God. There are times when a spouse or our love light, life or our, our uh, sexual gratification becomes our God. There are times when our children, when we make our children and the success or failure of them into our God, right? Uh, um, so the, the, we, we have this almost um, insatiable uh, ability to take good things and then just crank them up to 20, right? Obsess over them. And so what Peter is saying here is, is, is um, um, abstain from doing that. Like, in, in a sense, like, live in a degree of control, right? The, understand that the things that God gives us are blessings, but if we try to allow those blessings to take the role of God above, um, none of them can, and all of them will let us down, okay? So Peter's kind of saying the first thing is, is, is live in contentment and moderation and in thanksgiving to what your God above has given you, right? Abstain from sinful desires, right? You're going to see things happening all, all around the world in which you live. But for us, we're going to abstain, we're going to live in a different way, which leads to the second, right? Uh, where he says um, that, that those around you, the unbelieving world around you, um, live in such a way that the unbelieving world around you are going to see your good deeds, that they're going to ask themselves something about how you live, how you treat them, and what you do. Um, you've maybe heard the psychological term of cognitive dissonance, right? Cognitive dissonance. So um, this is the idea that, that um, the, the things that we're seeing um, don't align up with 
some of the other facts about it, right? This picture maybe gives you a little bit. So it looks like an apple, and yet the shadow looks like a, like a pear, right? So a little bit of, this is visual cognitive dissonance. Um, I think that's what Peter's talking about here. So he's saying, you as believers who have been taken from darkness to light, we're going to live our lives in a way that is slightly different than the world around us. And what that is going to do is that is going to create a degree of cognitive dissonance in the minds and in the lives of the people whom you live with, right? And so Peter says, this is our opportunity, ultimately, to shine a light on the hope that we have in Christ, I'm convinced in our world now and in the next coming years, our acts of service as believers are going to be the greatest opportunity you have, we have, to create cognitive dissonance in the lives of the people around you. Believers who are willing to serve, who are willing to love, who are willing to to step into the darkness, into the struggle, into the pain, ask questions and actually listen and actually care. I think in the coming years and even right now, those will be our greatest opportunities to create that dissonance and ultimately let the light of Christ shine. Shine in what we do and what we choose not to do and in the lives of those around us, okay? So that leads us to our second point here. If you're filling stuff in, a distinctive dissonance, okay? We live as salt and light amongst the people around us. Um, And Peter encourages us to live in such a way that those around you will say there's something different about how they talk, about how they act, and about their willingness to serve and to love. Okay? Their second point. Finish with this. Verse 13 through 17. Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, to commend those who do right. Talking a little bit about church and state here, right? Uh, For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of the foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So this is Paul talking about, right, uh, we have freedom, but don't use it, right, uh, in order to cover up evil, right? Live as God's slaves, Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. So um, we're going to kind of have three points here at the end that Peter sends us home with, right? Uh, The first one is submit, which that one's probably the hardest one at first blush for us to to hear uh, and maybe even inwardly digest and swallow because our human reaction is we don't submit to anyone. Well, you're actually lying to yourself, right? You do submit to someone. It might just be yourself, right? All of us submit. All of us worship. All of us bow down at the feet of something, someone, or some philosophy. We don't have an option, right? Everyone worships. The only question we get to ask is, who or what do we worship? Paul's encouragement is that we submit to our God above, who submitted to death on a cross for us, right? Unconditional love is what motivates our living for our God above. So Peter's kind of coming full circle, right? Um, And that one's sometimes hard for us, I think, right? But again, I think this is our greatest opportunity as believers in this world to live in ways that are dissonant, that are different than the world around us. Because the world in which you live will say, "You you have to fight, 
You have to go out and get it. You have to eye for an eye. You have to retaliate in the same way or slightly more. The world will tell you all of those things. And Peter says, for us as believers, we are motivated, we are empowered, and we live in a different way because we have a Savior and a God who did that on our behalf. Christ's service allows us to serve. We love because we know how we have been loved. And so Peter can say these words, and we can legitimately um, 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 digest and hold on to these words because we know that of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Okay? Second one there, respect everyone. Right? There's this um, picture of the early Christians um, almost indiscriminately loving, respecting, submitting to one another and to the world around them. And we say, all of that sounds weak, right? We say, none of that, pastor, none of that works in the real world. You could make that statement to me. And you'd be partially right and partially wrong. We all know how the real world works, and it doesn't work by acts of service, submission, and, and unconditional love. But Peter says that is how God's economy works. And in fact, Christ was our example and our reality of that. We say, okay, well, what impact can that have? Us serving, us loving, us submitting within the world around us. This is a map of the spread of early Christianity. This is what Christians did, how they acted, and how they lived their lives. And we say, what impact could living a life of service have on the world around us? This is it. If you look at the purple, that is where Christianity had become the dominant religion by 185 AD. That is about 85 years after John the disciple died. He died about 100 AD. Okay? By 325 AD, almost the entire populated world would have been Christian. Not everyone was, was a Christian, but Roman Empire emperor actually converted to Christianity. So what impact can our service, our acts of love, and our submission as believers do in the world around us? Here you go. If that didn't happen, we wouldn't be here. If that didn't happen, if believers didn't do that, we wouldn't have been called from darkness to light at a church in Firestone, Colorado. So, incredible impact. Brings us to our last words. Christians submit, we serve, and we step. And I've got one last story for you. Um, this one is personal to us here as a congregation. I'm not going to use uh, his name, but he, he has allowed me to use his story, talk about examples of service. Um, one of our members uh, is in the process of, of an act of service that um, is going to literally take something out of his body. You can kind of guess. It's a kidney, right? Um, he was sharing this story with me uh, of, of his kidney donation. He had a military friend from way back in the day. Um, that military buddy's son uh, needed a kidney transplant. And so they, they, they put it on Facebook, which is where we go. I said, we need, we need a kidney transplant. They couldn't find anybody in the family. And he said, I saw it on Facebook, and I knew that they had a really tight family, and, and I knew that they had extended friends around them. And I thought in my mind, um, this shouldn't be any problem. They're going to find somebody. He said, and he said, I was okay with that, right? And then about six months later, he saw the post again. And they had not found anybody. And he said at that point, he said, I decided, if not me, then who? And if not now, 
than when. And he would share that he didn't formally decide in that moment, I'm going to do this, but he simply said this, out of his love for Christ, out of his love for his buddy, and out of uh, desire to serve, he said, I'm simply going to take the step. And so he got tested, and he was a match. And he continued walking down that path, and uh, I think in the next week or two, he's going to have the final tissue sample, and we're praying that that is positive as well. Now, your act of service might not be giving a kidney, although some of you maybe have, right? Your act of service might not be jumping into typhoon waters and saving 30 people with a rope tied around you. But every single day, we have opportunities to perform acts of service which create a dissonance and ultimately point to our Lord and Savior above. Every single day, we have opportunities if we open our eyes and our ears to serve and to love those around us. When I talked to that man, um, the reality of it is the act that he decided to do was far less important than his motivation and his decision to actually step step into that void. I don't know how God's going to use your acts of service, but I guarantee he will. If you are willing, if we are willing to step into the darkness, into the suffering, into the pain, and into the world around us, I guarantee God will use you to bring people from darkness to light, people that were not a people to become a people, and ultimately find the mercy of Christ. Pray the Lord blesses us as we do that. I pray the Lord blesses you in your acts of service as they point to Christ as your Lord and Savior. Amen.